Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant and a co-founder of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. And I'm Karen Bodnar. I am an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harbor UCLA Medical Center and a general pediatrician. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. And this podcast is sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Just so you know, the content of our podcasts does not necessarily reflect official policies or protocols of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Are you ready to go? Hi, Karen. Hi, Anne. Welcome to 2016. Thanks. It seems great so far. Okay, so let's. Um, so, were you going to talk today about one of the new updated Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine protocols on prenatal care? That's right. And uh, I was excited to talk to you about this, seeing as how, you know, I'm, I'm a pediatrician, I do less prenatal care, although I do have a lot of moms who come in noticeably pregnant with their children, and then I get the opportunity to do it, but I'm sure you do more. Um, So this is ABM Clinical Protocol number 19, Breastfeeding Promotion in the Prenatal Setting, which was revised um, in 2015 and published in the December issue of Breastfeeding Medicine um, by Casey Rosen, Carol, and Scott Hartman at the University of Rochester. And, um, you know, as we have said so many times, breastfeeding provides ideal infant nutrition. And um, so there's a whole protocol that goes into prenatal prenatal, um, education. And they do comment in the very beginning that um, although this focuses on prenatal, um, the prenatal setting, that programs or interventions that include preconception, prenatal, and postnatal components um, should be strongly encouraged because they have been shown to yield larger positive results on breastfeeding, duration, and exclusivity. But um, studies have shown us before that pregnant women often decide um, about how they're going to feed their babies early in pregnancy, and many have already decided prior to conception. And so um, encouraging them and educating them increases breastfeeding initiation as well as exclusivity and duration. And so this goes into a whole bunch of recommendations. And rather than read the whole article, um, I was going to just highlight sort of the the big, bold recommendations so we could talk a little bit about um, our experiences and what you find to be effective. Yeah. Well, one of the things I want to say is that, um, you know, that Preventative Services uh, Task Force, the United States Preventative Services Task Force, I think it was back in 2008 or 2010, stated that uh, office support or provider support of breastfeeding prenatally was actually a worthwhile intervention. And I always joke with people that um, they usually say that all the things that we do in primary care are somewhat worthless, like physicals and prostate exams and breast (laughs) exams and all these things. But they do say that this is worthwhile, which to me says a lot because they are very rigorous in terms of um, the way that they evaluate um, our interventions. Yeah, absolutely. I think that they they tend to look at really the the cost benefit analysis as well as whether or not it just, you know, makes us feel like we're doing something. Right. 
Yeah. And so, I mean, I guess I just say if they say that it's worthwhile, that means a lot and that we really should be putting our efforts towards it. Absolutely. And I think that um, the revision... This was last published in 2009, and there are significant changes. It's a much longer document. The um, future research needed has changed because several of the recommended studies from the previous article have been done, and so I think it's, it's a really good one to review. So um, the first recommendation is to create a breastfeeding-friendly office and community. And they've sort of broken this down into these two parts, and there is a whole additional um, ABM protocol on the breastfeeding-friendly physician office, and that's number 14. Um, And so I would encourage people, if they haven't um, looked at that, to go and look at it because there is so much in there, and I think that um, there's a lot of work that has been done in that area in the past few years. California is just coming out this month with their sort of official statewide um, office-friendly protocol, which they used ABMs to develop. And I think that um, there's a lot of progress being made towards encouraging offices to become more supportive. So that, as with sort of hospital support, starts with having a written policy. Um, I've become a big believer in this. If you don't, you know, say what you're going to do, it's never going to get done. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, sort of having space first and foremost for staff um, employees to have a safe, clean, comfortable place to express their milk or to breastfeed. And then it goes in further about talking about um, not having literature or samples provided by artificial infant formula companies. And I think that is an area that still a lot of places need to work on. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I think in addition, I think one of the toughest things in provider offices for employees is finding the time to pump because we all, you know, many of us have um, exam rooms that can be used. Although I suppose in really tight markets like in New York and Los Angeles where real estate's at a premium, it's hard to get sufficient exam rooms. But um, I think really it's scheduling that time in and having other staff um, kick in their, their, you know, filling in for that Um, nurse or medical assistant or receptionist who has to take a break to pump. Yeah, absolutely. I think I just had a conversation with a colleague um, this week and she is a a family doc and she's just starting to go back to work. Her twins are a few months old and um, she was talking about how, you know, she gets there by eight and then normally she would work, you know, until at least 1230. That's, that's too long for her to go. And so, you know, for her, some physicians I've talked to in the past have had success with scheduling, like leaving a, a, an appointment slot open right. at 1030. Um, but, you know, what you were saying about having an exam room open, that's great for physicians. But I was talking this week to a woman who cleans the floors in the hospital where I work, and she doesn't really have any space that's her, hers, and she is hired by a cleaning company that's contracted by the hospital. So she doesn't even, you know, her HR people are not on site. Yeah, right. That's, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, I I feel strongly that in the medical field, we don't do a good job supporting our employees. Yeah. We have a long way to go. Yep. Um, So um, I think another thing that was highlighted in there that was sort of new for me that 
obviously makes sense, but I hadn't really put much thought into was um, just citing intention to breastfeed as part of transfer of care materials like prenatal records and um, hospital and birth center discharge summaries. Mm, good idea. Yeah. And then um, part B of that recommendation is breastfeeding friendly community. Um, there are a lot of components that can go into that, but really partnering with organizations to maximize patient services and support and knowing what community resources are available so that you can pass that information on to your patients are the biggest ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think one, uh, you know, in primary care, there's so many different things that nurses and staff need to learn about in terms of connecting with um, outside services. And um, I think the only, quite honestly, I think one of the best ways to to get staff to know who to refer to for lactation services is to have staff trained. You know, they have to be trained to, um, to have knowledge uh, regarding this field. Um, unfortunately, so many of them know where the Weight Watcher groups are and the um, Al-Anon groups and the AA groups and the, um, you know, the, the resources for, um, for Alzheimer's support, but they don't know about breastfeeding support, whereas more than 80% of women in many communities are initiating breastfeeding, and we still don't um, have that incorporated into the basic knowledge that um, medical office staff um, have. Yeah, and it takes time. I mean, as I've moved around the country, it always takes me a while to sort of get my feet on the ground, learn what the local resources are. And so if every time a new person joins your office, they're having to do that on their own, it just, it takes too long. Yeah. Um, They mentioned considering use of prenatal home visiting programs. um, And I think that um, this is, you know, also what jumps to my mind is WIC because they're such a big part of breastfeeding support in many of the places where I have been. Some have peer counselors in the hospital, some have home visiting programs. It's just, you got to find out what's going on with your local organization, particularly if they serve the population that you're seeing. Right. And, you know, well, so in Wisconsin, more than 50% of women are eligible for WIC and uh, WIC plays a really important role in prenatal support. Um, in Wisconsin. And the problem is that we don't have that coordination of care between WIC and medical systems. So the the person who's providing that prenatal care, whether it's a midwife, um, in a family physician, or an OB, that provider does not know that that, that the mother already was at WIC and has been um, and has been um, given or been provided prenatal support and advice um, regarding nutrition and breastfeeding through WIC. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that came up for me this week, I was asked to participate in a discussion about prenatal care um, in a clinic where I am, was that the a lot of the um, patients in this clinic, it's all um, women of low socioeconomic um, status, they all are referred to WIC, and most of them become participants at A lot of them are not taking the breastfeeding class, which is available to them through WIC. And Mm -hmm. so trying to um, sort of make it a point in the visit to say, this is worthwhile, take advantage of this opportunity. 
um, is the least that we can do. Yeah, that's important. I think it's also important if um, if medical providers find that they're that they have a population that won't attend those classes, to figure out you know is that is it culturally appropriate for them, and maybe they need to figure out a way to develop a breastfeeding class that is culturally appropriate. And that is the perfect lead-in to recommendation number two, (laughs) which is um, consider the background, ethnicity, and culture of individual women, families, and communities. Um, It's really important to know about families, community, and um, their social support or lack thereof um, to understand that perspectives and beliefs of partners and supporters affect breastfeeding success. Um, And for some cultures, enlisting the cooperation of important family members can make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. I've had a number of different cultures where family members are there, but they also are expecting the mother to still do a lot of work around the house, you know, and to be present in the living room all the time. Um, and it, yeah. it is really interesting as opposed to certain cultures where women are supposed to not get out of bed or take a shower for 30 days. Right. Um, there's a huge <laughs> variety and it takes getting to know, you know, what's going on in your community. Um, another really interesting point, which I really encountered a lot in Southern California was the effect of a cultural acculturation or assimilation of immigrant populations. Um, and so a lot of times Women, particularly where we were, who came, you know, if you're first generation and you'd come from Mexico or Guatemala, you were very likely to exclusively breastfeed. But the second generation um, had were much more likely to um, bottle feed formula because they had been sort of in this American culture where that was the thing to do um, in the neighborhoods where they were living. And so it was really important to kind of find out more than just where are you from, but you know, were you born in this country? How long have you been in this country? Um, trying to see how that affected people's plans. Mm-hmm. And that's where peer counseling is so important because um, they're not, they may, again, they're not going to necessarily listen to an older white individual say, this is best for your baby, if that's not what, uh, if they don't see peers doing that. So getting the peers out of the closet or you know, into the limelight, you know, for them to recognize that yeah you know there are people who are quote-unquote american just like them who um who do breastfeed yeah absolutely and i think one of the things that was highlighted in this clinic that i mentioned a minute ago was that so many of the women who attend this clinic are going back to work super duper early Mm -hmm. and so whereas they may have a 16 year old who was born in another country who they exclusively breastfed until they were, you know, a toddler, they now are being told by their friends, make sure you introduce the bottle right away because otherwise when you go back to work at four weeks, your baby won't take the bottle. Right. And that's a really challenging thing that they're having to face. Yeah. Yeah. And learning and figuring out how, like, what does that really mean? Does that mean that you just switch to a bottle or does it mean just make sure the baby can take a bottle and once a day? So having them understand, um, you know, what, what it means or what they can do about breastfeeding when they go back to their job and whereas they may not have done that before in this country. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that that also now leads into the next recommendation, which is um, consider behavioral 
and psychoeducational approaches to breastfeeding support. And so the reason I said that, you know, you're leading into this is sort of this idea of digging into what are the particular concerns and then um, using um, sort of motivational interviewing or other um, models that allow us to, you know, use open-ended questions affirm what moms are feeling and then share some education with them. Because when we just start out and say breast is best, that Mm -hmm. just often misses the mark. We're, we're going on and on about benefits, which they completely agree with in some instances, but think don't apply to them because they have some barrier, which we just have not uncovered. Right. Yeah. Well, the approach that I like to take when I'm talking to families is how do you plan to feed your baby? Because I think you've started off by saying, are you planning on breastfeeding or bottle feeding or, you know, formula feeding? Um, they, especially if you say you're planning on breastfeeding, they already kind of know where you're at and mm-hmm. then they want to please you by saying something. And if you say, how do you plan to feed your baby? Well, you know, they're going to feed the baby. So, <laughs> right. They're going to feed the I baby. So. <laughs> and so then the question is, what are their thoughts about feeding the baby? So then you stay very neutral and perhaps that person, the person you're interviewing would, um, would then feel safe in just saying what they plan to do. Um, and feel that you're, you know, in neutral zone and so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. I use the same question. I ask, how are you planning to feed your baby? And then um, I try to uncover, you know, sort of a little more like, oh, you know, what has informed that plan? Um, A lot of times it's really helpful in this a little bit later in the history, you know, finding out, especially if it's not a first baby, doing that detective work of what happened um, with breastfeeding in the past so often I think that um, people miss that part of the story so I'll often have students or residents you know give me a history of a mom and this is a second or the third baby and they're you know maybe in the hospital telling me about the delivery and this and that and um, and I'll say well you know did they breastfeed previously and they just don't know mm-hmm. or if they do you know, they'll say yes. I'll say, oh, for how long? Because the difference between two weeks and two years tells you volumes. Mm-hmm. Right. That, exactly. you know, whether or not you need to, to dig into that further. Right. Um, so this then goes on to talk about just sort of asking women about anything that might get in the way of them reaching their goal. If their goal is to breastfeed, trying to figure out, you know, what concerns they might have. Um, and I find that also to be quite true when moms tell me that they are, you know, not planning to breastfeed. Sometimes when I say, oh, you know, what, what is, you know, what's going on? What has caused you to make that decision? And they say, oh, I take, a, I take this medicine and come to find out it's not a medicine that's a contraindication for breastfeeding, mm-hmm. but they just assumed it was or they've gotten misinformation or mm-hmm. Anyway, right. Absolutely. Super important to find out just to get to dispel myths and to really dig into um, any assumptions that they have. Mm -hmm. So this um, recommendation four is to integrate breastfeeding um, promotion, education and support throughout prenatal care. Um, So ideally start in the preconception period and um, 
one of my mentors, I remember talking to him a long time ago and him saying, well, you know, when you're at that eight-year-old well visit and you're talking about puberty, it's a great opportunity to say, you know, you're going to grow breasts and this is what they're for. And so I've done that ever since. Right. Um, right. Yeah, when I examine adolescence breasts, I talk about the lumpy, bumpy changes that are normal, like what to look for, um, you know, in terms of like gravel, almonds, you know, lumps, but um, but that there are normal lumpy, bumpy changes that they're going to feel throughout the month. And those are the glands that are present that will eventually make milk when they have a baby. So I just make it sound like, yeah, you know, this is exactly what happens. Your breasts are there to make milk. Um, just to normalize it as much as possible. Yeah, I always say they're not just for holding up our bikinis. Right. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, highlighted in here, I thought was interesting, the idea of using electronic medical record prompts to sort of help the consistency of healthcare provider um, interactions. And so, um, you know, sometimes if you have to document it, you're going to do it. I think it's, it's a balancing act these days with sort of checkbox overload when I'm documenting. Um, but it's one of the things we're talking about in the clinic where I'm sort of consulting on this prenatal care is what can we use the electronic medical record for that will help us? Mm -hmm. How can we pass information forward from the initial visit, which is a nurse intake visit to the, um, first provider visit where they're actually doing the breast exam, which will help the provider to be on target with, you know, the, the few questions that they're going to take the time to ask. Right, right. Um, it says strongly consider integrating lactation consultant support and education into prenatal office visits. Um, I think that, you know, Bringing a higher level of education into the office is great, be it through actual IBCLC or through other training um, so that there is a point person in the office that can be there to answer questions and triage calls. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we, yeah, we, I would like to talk a little bit about, you know, milk mob training and breast, having breastfeeding champions in the office because I think that the idea of having someone who um, is a lactation consultant in every office is um, it's a bit of pie in the sky. It's, you know, it's, if that's what we're yearning for, if that's what we're, our goal is, I don't think it's going to happen. We don't have someone in the office um, who specializes in heart failure, someone who specializes in high blood pressure or specializes in diaper rashes. You know, I mean, these are all primary care issues. Like Absolutely. Is a primary care issue. And um, so I think basic education in medical school, nursing school, pharmacy school, is all just so important. But in the meantime, um, having staff trained, um, even using like um, the Carolina Global Health Institute, the Carolina, yeah, Global Health Institute, the Breastfeeding Institute, they mm -hmm. have, a, they, they established a really nice prenatal education um, curriculum that can be used uh, with moms. It's like about an hour training for staff. Um, which is perfect, you know, just for them to understand the kinds of ways that we can encourage uh, moms to, um, you know, to breastfeed. And so I, I think there, I guess there, there have been some studies showing that having mothers um, have contact with lactation consultants prenatally does increase their incidence of incidence and duration. Um, and however, you know, again, is that really going to happen? And do we want to send people outside of the primary care medical home 
for that education and why can't that happen in the office? Why do they have to go somewhere else? And that's, that's my pet peeve about breastfeeding um, and medical care is that women are sent somewhere else. They're not sent anywhere else for all kinds of different issues that they have, such as their kid's runny nose or their, like I said, their kid's diaper rash or their kid's umbilical hernia or, you know, whatever it is, and, unless it needs surgery. Well, not everyone needs a lactation consultant, you know, so. I think, no, I agree. You know, this gets down to just training staff. Um, and then the last two points in this recommendation are um, about the role of internet education, which um, the authors state that there, at this point, is not evidence to determine really the role of internet education, um, what role that will play in breastfeeding support. Um, but a lot of mothers are, of course, looking on the internet and often go to sites that are not that have little medical oversight. Um, so it's appropriate to direct our patients to. Um, trusted sources of information, be that WHO, the site you were just talking about. I, um, I like the Stanford um, breastfeeding website a lot. Mm-hmm. It's great. Um, and then it talks about considering novel technological approaches such as text messaging um, and other mobile phone apps, which are becoming, you know, more and more popular. Um, the next recommendation is take a detailed breastfeeding history as part of the prenatal history. And this includes, for each previous child, ask about breastfeeding intention, duration, exclusivity of any breastfeeding, sources of support, perceived benefits, and challenges. Um, This might be my favorite part of the (laughs) thing, but it's just because I find that, I find it to be a really, really important piece of um, history that is that is really often lacking. Mm -hmm. And so I talk a a lot to people about, you know, in the beginning of pregnancy, women get a breast exam and it's a perfect opportunity to observe for appropriate breast development and anatomy and to comment on it. It is wonderful to say to a mom, wow, your breasts are perfect for breastfeeding. You know, probably nobody has ever said that to them before. They've talked a lot about their breasts with their girlfriends, maybe their partner, but you know, this is, this is a key, a key thing, thing for them to know. It's an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then talking about any um, sort of red flags that a mom is high risk for breastfeeding problems, like um, a history of failure to breastfeed a previous child, chronic medication or supplement use, infertility, previous breast surgery or trauma, cranial or chest irradiation, um, in domestic or intimate partner violence, or a physical exam with um, flat or inverted nipples, glandular hypoplasia, obesity, or um, history or physical suggestive of diabetes, thyroid problems, or polycystic ovarian syndrome. Right. It's pretty tricky to say, you know what, you're at risk, you know, because boy, oh boy, women start out not having confidence anyway. And then if you... I, I, it's almost like a don't ask, don't tell kind of situation. And women should be followed closely anyway. You know, I can personally, I have seen a lot of women over the years where I look at their breasts prenatally or in, or the first day in the hospital, if I have not met them before. And I look at their breasts and I think, Ooh, this is bad. Look at those breasts. <laughs> They're widely spaced. They look hypoplastic. Yikes. And guess what? They go on to make oodles of milk. And, um, and so I think we have to, you know, if we, 
if I'm quite concerned, I will say, look, you know, I just want to be honest with you. I'm really concerned and I just want to follow you closely. But I think if someone's obese or has polycystic ovarian syndrome, they're so variable in terms of how women do that I think we, if they start to have a delay in lactation, then say, you know what, you do have a few risks for this delay in lactation, so let's follow you really closely right now. Um, yeah, although I have to say, you are in the lucky position of being that same person who's going to follow them before and after. And I think that, you know, sometimes I struggle because I worry, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get another opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so it is definitely a very, um, if it's a balancing act, if it's somebody who, for instance, has had breast reduction surgery, um, you know, if nobody has told them that that could have an effect on their milk supply, I think that's important information for them to have. Oh, I think breast reduction, I think it's malpractice to not tell them that. I mean, I think yeah, that's... But I think a lot of times it's been so long that people don't necessarily, even if they were told, and I, I've had my doubts with many patients before, whether or not they really got that information, they might not really have processed it. You know, they were pretty young when they had the surgery and it's 10 years later. Right. So, No, but I mean, no, but I mean, if you're, if whoever's taking care of that mother postpartum, whoever's taking care of that baby, they have to have that history. Oh, yeah, and absolutely. If, and they have to disclose that to the mother. That's a big one. Um, yeah. But it's amazing how often people miss surgery on the, I mean, on the history and and sometimes the scars are not obvious right um and so i think that i in particular i i've met so many moms because i agree with what you're saying with like they've been told oh you have flat nipples or you have inverted nipples and i think that a lot of times it just causes them untoward anxiety and really it has very little impact on on how they do and so i think this is it really depends on um, what resources you have, your knowledge level. Um, you know, I think it's really important to highlight these things for the history, but I agree with you to be um, cautious about what you say because right. we don't want to undermine mom's confidence. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of times we do, I just think we don't have a crystal ball. It's We really don't have crystal balls in a lot of situations. But I would also say that when when um, a provider, when a physician is collecting this information prenatally to find out, oh, you mean every single time at six weeks you lost your milk supply? Um, that person, I feel, should is best off referred to a lactation consultant um, to understand what had happened. And I th- and so in my lactation clinic, I see a number of women who are pregnant who come in to tell their story and they want to be successful the next time, but they also want to understand what happened. I feel like that's one of the biggest gifts that I can give people in my lactation clinic is, is an understanding of their physiology and what happened. And so often it's because their babies sleep through the night at an early age. You know, that mm. they just have babies who are just really good sleepers and they're, and there's so much competition, you know, to get babies to sleep throughout the night that you're a good mother, you're a good father. <laughs> if your kid's sleeping for 12 hours at six weeks, well, guess what? You're not going to have a milk supply if you do that, unless you're just one of these super producers. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I feel like, um, I dig up a lot of information on families when they come in and we do these prenatal consults. So I would encourage people who are seeing these moms prenatally, if they have had problems and they're concerned about being successful, um, to, you know, to be seen by a lactation consultant. Yeah, absolutely. And I, 
I I love seeing moms prenatally. I find it to be um, very helpful um, if there have been past problems or even if it's just a first-time mom who, you know, having that opportunity to do her breast exam and give her some education if she, you know, doesn't have other sources or even if she does, having her partner come with her can be really, really valuable. I enjoy yeah. it. And so much more laid back than when they're, you know, exhausted and anxious and uh, mm-hmm. crying and, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so the, the last point under this section is consider a prenatal lactation referral to a physician who specializes in breastfeeding medicine or a lactation consultant if concerns are identified. And so um, hopefully over time there will be more of us so that, you know, there is somewhere for all moms to go when they need that. Right. Um, Number seven is discuss breastfeeding at each prenatal visit, Um, address concerns and dispel misconceptions, Um, provide information on medication safety during pregnancy and breastfeeding, and then there are a couple other tools in here that are um, great for people to come and look at this and check out the references as well. And then um, the last part of the, no, it's not the last part. The next part is um, sort of broken up into by trimesters, um, talking about first, second, and third. A lot of that information we've already covered. Um, Just briefly, I think um, the one point in here that afterwards I was sort of missing, and I actually called... um, one of the authors and was like, you know, I really would love to see something in here specifically targeting um, moms who are at risk of premature birth or um, who are having signs that they're going to deliver um, premature, sort of talking to them about the additional benefits of breast milk for premature babies. Um, And she was really excited about that idea and said, maybe it's not too late to get it into the online edition. That's a great idea. Yeah. So that's my my uh, hope for, you know, when I get excited about helping with this protocol again in a few more years. Um, but it's really amazing to me how sort of anxious um, people are about a mom who's, you know, had a, a really early preemie and she's already stressed out and exhausted um, about going and asking that mom to get pumping and to get started in the first hour when my experience has really been that moms are so grateful to be able to do something in that situation to try to provide that medicine for their um, very sick preemie. Absolutely, because otherwise they sort of get left in the dust. And yeah, they want absolutely. to do so- Yeah, they need to do something. And to be told, your breast milk, your colostrum is super important right now. Just keeps them connected. Because mm-hmm. yeah. oftentimes they think it's their fault that the baby's delivered early. Yeah. Um, and so... The other part in here in the third trimester that we really didn't touch on yet was um, discussing potential options for pain management during labor and possible impacts on breastfeeding, Um, talking about the importance of skin-to-skin contact after birth, empowering women and their families to have um, a birth experience that's conducive to breastfeeding um, by informing patients about the 10 steps to successful breastfeeding um, and encouraging moms to ask for help and to ask why if they're told that their baby needs infant artificial infant formula in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. 
And so um, at the end here's recommendations for future research. Um, and a, a couple of these have to do with, although different studies have shown, um, have demonstrated efficacy of specific interventions going on and doing cost-effectiveness studies um, of those, like um, creating a, an outpatient making an outpatient practice breastfeeding friendly um, or doing different types of prenatal care um, as well as the um, translational research investigating implementation um, in different healthcare organizations of prenatal um, breastfeeding education. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, so is there anything else that you tell mothers that when you see a mother who's pregnant and she wants like a few pearls of advice for being successful in the hospital, is there anything, anything else special that you tell her? That's a really interesting question. I would say that from my perspective, I, and this partly comes from my experience breastfeeding, I find it very, I, I, I took a regular breastfeeding prenatal class and they were teaching us different positions. It's just so different when you actually have your baby there. Um, and and so I didn't find that to be very helpful personally, sort of knowing this hold or that hold. What I wish that more moms had from their prenatal breastfeeding class is sort of an understanding of the basic concept that emptying your breasts is what causes you to develop a strong supply. Mm-hmm. And then a l- little bit more information on how to evaluate baby's output. Because every once in a while, but too often, I see a mom whose baby has really gotten into trouble. And, you know, it's a baby less than a week old who hasn't stooled in three days. Mm-hmm. And I just think, wow, there was a big gap in education there that allowed this mom to go out of the hospital without knowing that it's a red flag if the baby's not pooping. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there's a little bit I go into with moms with the mechanics and the importance of skin to skin. I tend to um, gravitate towards this idea of laid back nursing um, because mm-hmm. I think that it instinctually works best without a lot of education. Mm-hmm. But then I focus a lot on if you're having trouble, ask for help and, um, you know, this is this is how you know your baby's getting because yeah. they're going to poop. Because right. you can't tell. I had the lactation consultant say to me when I was in the hospital with my first child, oh, she's swallowing. Can you hear her swallowing? And uh-huh. I said, oh, yeah. No. <laughs> I lied. Oh, my god. I was intimidated. Yeah. And I, you know, like I wanted to go along with the flow and... And, you know, how hysterical is that Right. nine right. years later that, you know, so I, I don't assume that moms can appreciate whether or not their baby is swallowing. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, I think it's very, it's just, you know, learning to watch the baby and see what's going on is, um, is something that we need to point out. Some, a couple of things that I like to point out to families before they deliver, they'll say, do you have any words of advice? And one thing I say is, look, when your baby's born, your baby is awake and alert and most active feeding at midnight. Whatever time you go to bed now and your baby's like wild and kicking <laughs> and having a party, that's when your baby's going to be most successful. So if you think 
that if you plan on having a lot of people come to visit you during the day, guess what? You're going to be up during the day and you got to be up at night when your baby's going to feed the best. I said, don't let the visitors come. You are not sick. You do not need someone to be sitting there staring at you. What you need to do is you need to be sleeping <laughs> during the day. They're not coming to stare at you. They're coming right. to stare at your baby. Right. Well, both, you know, but, um, right. But I just, I tell them like, don't let the visitors come. The visitors should go to your house, clean your house, fill up your refrigerator, <laughs> cook for you, whatever, and wait for you take care of the dog everything else and um and then when you come home they can hold the baby you know while you take a nap or whatever you know then they can have a little more baby time time. but yeah but really i think that's to me one of the biggest barriers of, of success is when mothers are just so like oh my god my baby was up all night this is horrible and i had to send the baby to the quote-unquote nursery even in baby friendly hospitals the nursery quote-unquote tends to be like the intermediate you know um, nursery where the babies get the IV fluids, or it's at the nurses station. The nurses station with they the, the unit coordinator. Down. Yeah, and so it, you know, even though we have these baby friendly hospitals, they still have nurseries, and it's and the babies still come out of the room because mom wants to sleep, and they should have been sleeping during the day. They have to be, you know, night owls, and so. Well, and um, also it's really hard to sleep during the day when they've got hourly rounding requirements and people are coming yeah. to change the sharps container at 7 a.m. And check the uh, equipment and then the, and then the, the um, shades are not that thick. And, uh, oh, my gosh, there's this the like, thing in. that's crazy that I've seen in several hospitals, which is please respect our quiet hours from 1 to 3 p.m. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> first of all, the fact that you need quiet hours in the afternoon Okay, and the fact that it's two hours long, right. give me a break. Yeah, let's <laughs> like, make it 10 hours long. Yeah, yeah, that's just, it's crazy. So I often um, encourage people to put signs on their doors that say, if you're not the nurse or the doctor, do not come in. Um, because I don't need somebody else to knock and ask if I have a tray to be taken away. Or recently a family told me that someone knocked on their door at midnight and offered them popcorn. Right, oh my God. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, she's like, I had just been asleep for 20 minutes um but yeah yeah we just do women so much injustice in these situations well i think we should wrap it up because our listeners are probably yawning by now (laughs) it's 45 (laughs) minutes so well that was good Uh, i really enjoyed talking about that um there's so much more to talk about we could have broken that up into two podcasts sorry everyone (laughs) so well karen onward and we will talk again uh just in a couple weeks Alrighty, talk okay, to you soon. Take care. Yep, bye. Bye. If you have any interest in the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine or any questions or comments about this podcast, please email us at abm at b as in boy, f as in frank, med.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few weeks.